Welcome to the Red Words Podcast, where we pursue a personal relationship with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Join us weekly as we deep dive into the dynamic and oftentimes curious Holy Spirit-inspired book of God's Word. We have another new letter this week to the church at Pergamos, and once again, the Lord warns that Satan has infiltrated his church. This is the third time in a row, making it quite clear how strongly the devil controls most of humanity. But rest assured, the Lord promises that one day Satan will be permanently bound, never to harm another person again. Pray that day comes swiftly. Amen. The history of Pergamos is interesting, and straight away we see that the city has two names, depending upon which translation is used. Pergamos is the feminine form, and Pergamum is the neuter form of the same word. Pergamos was known as the region's religious center. Many temples were erected for several Greek gods, Zeus, Athena, Apollo, and most notably for the serpent Asclepius, the god of healing and medical knowledge. The sick came to Pergamos from all over the Roman Empire to lay down on the floor in the temple at night in hopes one of the snakes occupying the temple would touch them and heal their ailment. Asclepius is the same Greek god who winds around our modern-day medical symbol, the Caduceus, which is known as the Rod of Asclepius. According to several key commentators, the Greek description of Pergamos means height or elevation, and towering some 1,000 feet above the city was the great altar of Pergamos, which Jesus refers to as Satan's throne. Additionally, the two root words that make up the name, per and gamus, means by marriage. Pergamos is the church that initiated syncretism, the blending of several religions together, in this case Greek mythology, pagan idolatry, and the new derisive religion called Christianity. This marriage blending strongly affected Jesus' first century church, and it still affects churches to this day. Okay, so Pergamus represents the church that is married to the world, and this holds great significance because Pergamus switched from worshipping Greek gods and a few pagan sun and planetary gods to worshipping the current Roman emperor, much like the citizens of Babylon did when they worshipped Nimrod. Why is Babylon significant here? because all idol worship can be traced back to Babylon, where the citizens stopped worshiping the Lord God and began worshiping sun, moon, and planetary idols before moving on to worship their leader. When they began worshiping Nimrod, the Babylonian priests and the city's citizens began sacrificing women and children to Baal, Baphomet, and Moloch, different names for the same god. You see, Nimrod is a moniker for Satan, and these same gods are still being worshipped today and still involve human sacrifice. All idolatry, pagan and human worship religions, Greek, Roman, Persian, Asian, and others around the world, trace their roots back to Babylon, Nimrod, and the Babylonian priesthood. Now get this. Throughout history, the Babylonian priesthood always followed the power and the money. So when Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon, the Babylonian priests transferred their allegiance to Persia. When Persia was conquered by the Greeks, the Babylonian priests transferred their allegiance to Greece. 
The same thing occurred when the Greeks were conquered by the Romans, and it happened again when the Caesars were overtaken by the Roman Babylonian priests. They took all the accumulated worship practices from Babylon, idolatry, paganism, and Nimrod worship, and transferred them over to their newly formed religion called the Roman Catholic Church, where today the Pope claims himself to be God and demands to be worshipped as such. To make matters worse, Pergamus blended ancient Babylonian satanic idolatry with Greek and Roman paganism and then married in the brand new religion known as Christianity. This marriage blending is what Jesus is warning against in his letter to the church at Pergamus. You see, the city was a melting pot of syncretism with Caesar worship and the new Christian religion spreading like wildfire. Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. Immediately from his choice of identities, we see a very different Jesus from how he identified himself to the first two churches. Here, the Lord wields the weapon of God's word in all of its strength and truth. For God is first and foremost the all-loving and merciful one, but he is also vengeful because he is the judge of all mankind and his son will be the one responsible for doing his father's avenging. Jesus needs the church at Pergamos to understand that he is serious regarding his message to them. So Jesus continues in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Yet again, we see that Jesus knows what we're doing. He is involved in our lives and keeps track of our work. Jesus verifies that the famous Pergamus altar is Satan's throne. This church literally lives within Satan's city, yet some of their congregation holds fast to the Lord's name. They have not turned their faith over to idols or pagan symbols or Caesar worship or the new Christianity, despite the fact that one of their members was martyred in their presence. Instead, they hold fast to Jesus' faith, that which Jesus has in them, for them and with them. They have not transferred their trust and confidence to anyone or anything else because he trusts them and has confidence in them. His faith is their faith. Yet these congregation members are struggling and Jesus sees this and reminds them that he knows his beloved believer Antipas is dead. Jesus honors Antipas by claiming him as his own, my faithful martyr, a name also given to Jesus in Revelation 1, 5. Obviously, Antipas followed Jesus faithfully as a man who was like Jesus. In researching Antipas, there is nothing to be found. He is one of the great, nearly anonymous heroes in the Bible that would remain unknown except for the Lord Jesus Christ mentioning him with such love in this passage. Like the rest of us who struggle in our faith but remain true, we too are anonymous in the world. Yet, Jesus recognizes our faith and trust in him and makes us his own. We live in his heart and in his mind, and he recognizes and knows us. 
We're not told why Antipas was killed, but he died in Satan's city and obviously stood against evil. Interestingly, the name Antipas means against all. Another fitting meaning is the word martyr from the Greek martis. Prior to the New Testament, martis meant a witness to something true. As more and more believers were killed in the New Testament, the definition switched to mean a person killed for their religious beliefs, beliefs that differed from the norm. Antipas was a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he died because he refused to change his witness despite torture and suffering, just like Christ died for us. No wonder Jesus gives him that special title, My Faithful Witness. Then the letter lists Jesus' considerable concerns, starting in verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. I cover the entire doctrine of the prophet Balaam and his relationship to the Moabite king Balak in the donkey series on the blog page. But the short version is this. There are two nations in Numbers 22 who are concerned with the size of the Israelite nation as they march toward the promised land. Moses is leading them, but must go through Moabite and Midianite lands to get there. Moses asks to travel through, but some of the kings refuse him passage, and God instructs Moses to destroy these nations, which he does. The Moabite king Balak is frightened by this turn of events, and he sends emissaries to ask a non-Jewish prophet for hire named Balaam to speak with God about cursing his nation Israel. That right there is amusing, since God does not allow anyone to curse his people. Balaam doesn't care. He consults God and asks him if he should go with King Balak's emissaries to do just that. Why? Balaam loves money. But God tells Balaam that he must not go, and to his credit, Balaam obeys the first time. But King Balak sends far more important men back to Balaam and demands he come and curse Israel. When Balaam asks God yet again to curse his nation, God is angered. He had already told Balaam no, but this time he tells Balaam to go, but instructs him only to speak what God commands. Oh, okay, now the fun begins. Balaam hops on his trusted she-donkey and rides out behind King Balak's men. Unbeknownst to Balaam, God sends his son to earth to deal with him. The thing is, Balaam's she-donkey can see things Balaam cannot. When she encounters the mighty warrior Lord with his sword raised above his head, she veers off the path, and this embarrasses Balaam so greatly that he beats her back onto the path. When the Lord blocks her again in a very narrow place between two walls, she pushes between the Lord and the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. Balaam beats her furiously. When the Lord moves once again, and despite being severely beaten, the she-donkey refuses to go forward and lays down on Balaam's leg. He falls off and curses the animal. Unbelievably, the she-donkey asks him why he's beating her. 
Balaam tells her he's going to kill her for all the embarrassment she's caused him. And then the Lord reveals himself to Balaam, standing in the path with his sword raised above his head. You get the picture of what type of man Balaam is, and things don't get any better for him. And in the end, no matter how many times he attempts to curse God's people, his curses come out of his mouth as blessings. This infuriates King Balak, and he tells Balaam to get lost. But before he goes, Balaam whispers to King Balak the secret to defeating God's people. How? The gorgeous Moabite and Midianite women lure the young Israeli men away from camp, where they indulge in idol worship, eat the meat set aside for sacrifice, and then sleep with these women. As a result, God sends a plague upon the nation and 24,000 Israelites are killed. God then sends Moses and the Israeli army to destroy the Midianites, which they do. We learn in Numbers 31 that the Israelites capture Balaam and kill him for what he did. There are those in the church at Pergamos who are leading some members of the congregation into the sinfulness of idolatry, eating idol sacrifices and immorality. The immorality could be physical, but more likely it is spiritual. They are instructing the church at Pergamos away from the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ toward the blending, the marrying, the whoring after false gods. And immediately after Jesus lists his second concern, this is what he says in verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. We know from the letter to the church at Smyrna how the Lord abhors church leaders who demand that their congregations worship them. In verse 16, Jesus tells them, So repent. If you don't, I will come to you quickly and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, we're all going to fail. That's not the issue, as Proverbs 24:16 explains. Even a just man falls seven times. But the problem stems from not seeking forgiveness and not having a repentant heart. Jesus shed his blood for our iniquity. To be covered in his blood, to be covered in his forgiveness, we must seek him and repent. So claim 1 John 1.9 as your evening prayer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we must understand what's happening here. Jesus is not telling Pergamos that he will remove their lampstand like he told Ephesus. No, he's saying that he will slay the false prophets within the church at Pergamos with God's word. We learn later in Revelation exactly what this slaying involves. But one can garner the ramifications when Jesus tells us that his sword is sharp and double-edged. Jesus continues, Let everyone listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. On the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the person who receives it. We are told to pay attention, to listen and perceive. This is not trivial. And then Jesus proclaims two rewards, manna the food of angels, as noted in Psalms 78.25, that sustains a person to the point they never hunger again. And 
a white stone with a secret name on it given by the Lord Jesus himself. Scholars note several things about white stones. In ancient times, during a trial, a white stone indicated innocence. In Greece, a white stone was awarded to the victor in a race. Interestingly, some people in Pergamus worshipped a goddess whose temple symbol happened to be a black meteorite. This white stone absolutely counters this paganism and represents purity with Jesus as the cornerstone of the universe and the cornerstone of God's church. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter speaks of Jesus' followers being lively stones who build up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood that is acceptable to God. Therefore, receiving a white stone from Jesus with a secret name is quite an honor indeed. And so, dear friends, take heed of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God today as you seek a deeper personal relationship with Him. Thank you for joining me and know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you very much. And so do we. Until next week, may you be richly blessed. Amen and Amen.